How can you make a difference on this crazy planet? Listen to nature-inspired stories and interviews with environmental educators for some new ideas. Sustainable Living News writer, nature walker, and youth educator Wendy Natterney Fashon hosts the Story Walking Radio Hour to talk about issues that matter and to introduce you to people who are coming up with creative, sensible solutions. Let's engage with Earth, with spirit, and with one another heart-to-heart to solve problems and co-create more meaningful life stories. Tune in to Nature's Loving Vibes every Monday at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. here on the Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. Welcome to the Story Walking Radio Hour. I'm your host, Wendy Natterney Fashon, here on the syndicated Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. For a full listing of the station's offerings, please go to DreamVision7, that's numeral 7, radio.com. You'll find the Story Walking Radio Hour show listed under the Sustainable Living tab, or you can access it through my website at storywalking.com. As we tune into Nature's Loving Vibes today, we'll be talking about turning lawns into meadows for the purpose of habitat regeneration and reclaiming the biodiversity of our plants and animals. I think few people seem to realize that our greatest existential threat is actually the loss of natural habitat due to the ways we've chosen to make use of our lands and seas. Over time, investors and developers have replaced forests, fields, and wetlands with skyscrapers, industrial facilities, shopping malls, parking lots, and highways dense tracts of housing, and lots of streets. And while removing buildings and paving would be an unlikely and daunting task, we can do something within the places where we live. Please consider this. Recent satellite photographs have shown that lawns now occupy 45.6 million acres, and that's about three times the size of New Jersey, making the American lawn the largest irrigated crop in the U.S. in terms of surface area. Lawn irrigation on the East Coast of the United States accounts for 30% of water use. And yet, anyone who owns a yard or garden can rethink the use of their own small plot of land to help restore natural habitat and biodiversity. You know, call it a butterfly garden, a pollinator garden, or a backyard habitat. I'd maybe call mine a mini meadow. Anyway, as I take my daily walk around my suburban neighborhood, I see neatly cut grass lawns surrounding every house. Lawns have been the thing for over 50 years. Perfectly manicured grass lawns were marketed as an essential feature of the American dream in the 1940s and 50s. But hey, let's face it, lawn maintenance requires precious resources, time, money, and water. Lawns require labor, equipment, fuel for the equipment, and treatment applications such as fertilizers, weed killers, and insecticides for grub infestations. In fact, this morning, I received an email from the Pesticide Action Network about a new report. It's called Pesticides and Climate Change, A Vicious Cycle. This report is the first ever in-depth scientific review of how pesticides 
contribute to climate change and get this, how these pesticide-induced climate change impacts in turn lead to increased pesticide use. The report is eye-opening and I posted a link to the two-part webinar recording that explains this connection in this cycle. That is on my Facebook Story Walking Radio Hour group page. You can find it there. Okay, but you know, basically, chemical-treated lawns are unsustainable. Meadows, on the other hand, are self-sustaining and they attract a rich diversity of native bees, butterflies, and other beneficial insects as well as a beautiful variety of songbirds. We discontinued our lawn chemicals over 10 years ago, although yeah, we still mow. But life thrives on our cut lawn. Mixed in with the grass, there are dandelions, sweet clover, and violets. And when I get down on my hands and knees and look really closely, I also see the tiny flowers of sankfoil, chickweed, and veronica. Together, these weeds co-create the biodiversity that makes nature so resilient. When I decided to start replacing our lawn with a food forest last spring, I established a design plan. An important part of my food forest plan is to include wildflowers in order to attract bees and butterflies that will also pollinate the developing fruit trees. The specific recommendations given to me were to create an area or areas bordered by walking paths and then plant the areas with butterfly weed, echinacea, lupine, calendula, arnica, wine cups, marigolds, zinnias, poppy, I mean, clover. There's just so many possibilities. But these, I have some some ones that I can start with and um, sort of assess. But then once I do that, by attracting more pollinators, these wildflowers are going to help to increase the yields of my blueberry plants and cherry trees. I've invited today's guest to provide us with more guidance on this meadow planting effort. Owen Wormser is a landscape designer and author of Lawn into Meadows, Growing a Regenerative Landscape, an award-winning book published by Chelsea Green. Owen received a degree in landscape architecture in 1998 before finding his own landscape business, Abound Design. He offers consulting, installation, and sustainable landscape design services inspired by permaculture and deep ecology. His work serves as a means for sharing his deep connection with nature while further cultivating that connection within himself. He actively practices the skills and perspectives necessary to effectively weave people and the natural world back together. In in order now to set the stage for our time with Owen, I'd like to share a brief but powerful story walk. One of my most magical childhood memories is walking through a mountain meadow with my family. We spent a couple summer vacations hiking in the Rocky Mountains. And one of my favorite hikes was the Cathedral Lake Trail in Colorado. And my favorite Rocky Mountain wildflowers are are called Indian paintbrush. They're shaped like a paintbrush and grow in an array of bright colors, pink, red, orange, and yellow. As I found them growing alongside many other wildflowers and grasses, 
I felt as if I had stepped into a truly big and brilliant painting. My mother carried a field guide which helped us to identify and read about the various wildflowers. The diversity was incredible. I was mesmerized by the many shapes and colors of the flowers and enchanted by the common names describing them so appropriately. Bluebells, shooting stars, butter and eggs, elephant heads, pussy toes, and monkshood. Shooting stars, for example, are instantly recognizable with purple petals that sweep back from a yellow center and a pointed um, black pistil that looks like a little dart. A single stem grows in a cluster of as many as 20 flowers that appear to be falling down to earth. The Cathedral Lake Trail led across meadows and up switchbacks to almost 12,000 feet above sea level, where we found a white mountaintop that looked like a great temple. It stood out against the heavenly blue of the sky and reflected down upon the smooth surface waters of a small mountain lake. As we approached the lake, I stepped into yet another beautiful painting. And I sat down at the edge of the lake in awe and wonder, worshiping nature's breathtaking beauty, taking in this majestic landscape and honoring its creator. Colorado has over 3,000 species of wildflowers, roughly 2,000 species of butterflies, moths, and skippers, over 900 species of native bees, and 300 species of birds. Imagine, just imagine having one-tenth of that kind of diversity in your own yard. The fact is, <clears throat> grass lawns, by their monoculture nature, like corn or soybeans, displace wild habitat and eliminate biodiversity. Now, I'm not suggesting people get rid of their lawns altogether. Lawns are great for kicking a soccer ball and playing croquet. But all I'm saying is that any portion of lawn which can be replaced with forest or meadow plantings <clears throat> improves biodiversity and local ecology. And it brings additional long-term benefits. Once established, wildflowers require little maintenance and supplemental water. They only need to be moved back once or mowed back once per year and reseeded sparingly in bare spots. A meadow of wildflowers is a breathtaking sight, and it can turn your yard into a photo-worthy landscape for you and passers-by. It becomes a gift to your community. Many gardeners are facing drought and water restrictions in their area, and wildflowers, especially those native to the region, require little, if any, watering. And a wildflower meadow that blooms from spring through fall delivers season-long pollen and habitat for bees, butterflies, other beneficial bugs, and birds. So, with all this in mind, let's bring in our guest, Owen Wormser, meadow enthusiast and author of Lawns into Gardens, Growing a Regenerative Landscape. Welcome, Owen. Hello. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Um, 
Let's begin with your story, Owen. I want to know, what led you to your obsession with meadows? Like, was it sparked by any particular moment of awe and wonder? As a landscape designer, I focused on creating low-maintenance landscapes for the 25 years or so that I've been building, designing and building landscapes. And meadows are one of the most low-maintenance landscapes out there. And so I took it upon myself to learn how to create meadows. And a lot of what I put in lawns into meadows into my book are a lot of that information is just based on my experience working with plants and figuring out what works and what doesn't work. So meadows are the ultimate low-maintenance low landscape, and I needed to have that in my quiver. So, Owen, um, you know, low-maintenance landscapes, is there anything, you know, maybe that happened in your formative years that sort of prompted you to pursue that direction? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, when you were describing your experience as a child, sort of meeting some of those wildflowers in Colorado and how much of an impression they made on you. I had similar experiences growing up in the woods of Maine as a child, and we lived a half mile from our nearest neighbor. So we were really out there, and this is in central Maine, right in the North Woods. So really just a huge presence of nature around me. And what I noticed was that there are all these plants that would come up in the spring and bloom and uh, throughout the summer as well. And so I got to know some of these plants like trilliums and trout lilies and was enamored with them for whatever reason. I guess I was just drawn to them and I thought they were beautiful and was interested in them. So what, I noticed then stayed with me, and that's definitely been a theme through the rest of my life. And professionally, that's led to a deeper understanding that plants are just there and they can perform and do all these different things that we um, would like them to do if we put them in the right place. So that was sort of the beginning of my education, although I didn't know it at the time, but it goes all the way back to being a kid. Okay. Um, all right. So I'd um, like a particular quote from your introduction. Um, you stated, a meadow is what can happen when you give earth a chance to heal itself. I love that. Um, so what needs healing and how does a meadow achieve this? Well, certainly uh, the the general health of the environment needs a lot of healing, and meadows are important to that. But I also just want to kind of put um, as an aside to something that's more central to that, and it's my understanding that what really needs healing is our relationship with the earth as people, because all of the problems that are happening in the quote-unquote environment are essentially 99% of them are created by us. So it's that relationship that uh, really needs to be healed. And one way that we can do that for both the earth and for ourselves is to create landscapes that benefit all forms of life, not just people. And meadows are a great example of that, where 
they offer beauty for us, but they also offer a lot of habitat and resources to the natural world and really are a foundation of the food web, support a lot of small vertebrates and little animals, and certainly thousands and thousands of different species of insects. So meadows are really um, an important aspect of the ecology around us, and that's something that we can help create. And as you had mentioned with lawns, most lawn space isn't used. Used lawn space has value, but the areas that aren't being used um, could be converted to something like meadow, which has this huge ecological value. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so let's talk about um, designing a meadowscape. All right. Um, I imagine, uh, you know, in order to choose the most successful meadow plants for a chosen site, you, you first need to assess the soil and the climate conditions, right? And like, for example, I have a south-facing grassy hill that's too, too steep to mow. And even though we let the grass grow, the area can get like dried out under summer, the summer sun, you know, the drought conditions. And then it leaves a thick mat of, it's, it's ugly. It's like this flat, long grass, just kind of, I don't know, just flat down on the ground. Now, I'm wondering, can you elaborate on the challenges presented by soil and climate conditions, and how can one work with this information? Yeah, absolutely. So, fortunately, when you're working with native meadow plants, there's always a species for any condition. And that's one of the amazing things about meadows is that they're really resilient. And meadows can grow in horrible conditions where like uh, rehabilitated mine tailings or abandoned lots or places where the soil quality is just very poor. So having good soil isn't a requisite for creating meadow, but one thing that is absolutely critical when you're creating a meadow is making sure that you match the species to the conditions. So understanding what type of soil you're dealing with, the amount of, uh, the amount of sun exposure, is it extreme, do things dry out really quickly, you know, all of the environmental factors need to be understood well so that species can be matched to the site. And when you have a difficult site like the site you mentioned, there are species that love those conditions. Um, just for example, like purple love grass or little blue stem are two species of grass that really love droughty, poor soil conditions. All right. Um, that's really, you know, a lot for me to start thinking about here. Okay. And like, if you want to get these kinds of different plants, where would you go to get them? Um, you get seed, do you just sort of wondering where people would source the plants? So historically, once they, once they, yeah, of, okay, go ahead. Yeah, going back in time, it's been, it was harder to get a lot of these plant species and working with mail order uh, companies that provide seed has historically been how a lot of meadows are created. But more and more commonly, there's local or regional seed providers that are popping up, and there's also more places that are growing 
plugs, which are also called landscape plugs, which are basically just young perennials for those who aren't familiar with, with them. And they come in trays, so you'll be getting like 38 or 50 of these plants in a tray, and they're just baby perennials. Um, and those are becoming more common as well. Those can be mail-ordered, and they can also be purchased locally but, you know, if you have a nursery that started producing them. So one of the things that I encourage people to do is that if you can't find seed or plugs locally, to ask your nurseries and to poke around and to express interest and to try to help stimulate um, that, those, those industries. Great. Okay. Um, it's time for our first station break. Uh, so we're going to step back for a minute here. I'm your host, Wendy Natterney Fashon, here on the syndicated Dream Vision 7 radio network. And you're listening to the Story Walking Radio Hour. The purpose and mission of the Story Walking Radio Hour is to open minds and foster positive difference making here on planet Earth. To find more episodes, please visit my website at storywalking.com. Join our Facebook group, Storywalking Radio Hour, um, and that will help you keep up with our latest podcast releases and other related information. We'll be back in a moment to talk more about Lawns into Meadows, Rebuilding Biodiversity, with award-winning author and sustainable landscape designer, Owen Wormser. How can you make a difference on this crazy planet? Listen to nature-inspired stories and interviews with environmental educators for some new ideas. Sustainable Living News writer, nature walker, and youth educator Wendy Natterney Fashon hosts the Story Walking Radio Hour to talk about issues that matter and to introduce you to people who are coming up with creative, sensible solutions. Let's engage with Earth, with spirit, and with one another heart-to-heart to to solve problems and co-create more meaningful life stories. Tune in to Nature's Loving Vibes every Monday at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. here on the Dream Vision 7 radio network. How can parents help their teenage children navigate the challenging years between childhood and adulthood? How might parents continue to gently exert a positive influence during this critical stage of growth and development? Read The Difference Maker, written by parent and story-walking radio host, Wendy Natterney Fashan. This book shares the story of her late son, Neil, their relationship, and the wisdom of an enlightened teenager. The Difference Maker is a coming-of-age collection of stories that parents can share and discuss with their kids. Go to the storywalking.com website, download The Difference Maker, and become inspired. Why would God design a heart-shaped flower that cries? In a picture book titled The Angel Heart, a curious child picks such a flower and carefully pulls it apart, one poetic petal at a time, to reveal the answer. Discover the miracle of the heart and its role in providing comfort, joy, and peace. Written in the language of love, this uplifting story is sure to open up conversations about emotions, spiritual beliefs, the circle of life, or even fairy magic. Give your favorite child the gift of love. The Angel Heart by Wendy Natterney Fashan. Available through Amazon and Balboa Press. This is Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. Uniting mankind with universal love. Our shows are created from the heart, bringing each listener to a place of divine enlightenment. 
breathe, relax, and enjoy. Let life flow. Welcome back to the Story Walking Radio Hour here on the syndicated Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. I'm your host, Wendy Natterney Fashon, and we're talking about lawn, lawns into meadows and rebuilding biodiversity with sustainable landscape designer Owen Wormser. Um, now, we were talking about um, the different conditions that you would, you know, meadows are very resilient, um, and talking about a little, starting to get into design. And a good design for Meadowscape, from what I learned in reading Owen's book, is that you start with grasses. And like, for example, he said in an area that I have at home, purple love grass and I think little blue stem. Um, Owen, can you tell us more about grasses and why, why you might start with grasses? What's the importance of that? Grasses are the matrix that uh, meadow plants grow in and they're what makes a meadow a meadow. So all of the flowering plants really are growing within this matrix of grasses. And when you think of the meadow, it's the grass that makes it visually read as a meadow, even though it produces flowers too. But the whole idea of grass waving in the wind is sort of the archetypal image of the meadow. And also grasses create the a lot of the habitat and uh, stability and resilience of the meadow. So I usually am trying to create a meadow with about 30 to as much as 70% grass in it. And um, grasses, although they're not flashy, they, they are aesthetically attractive, not just during the summer, but in the winter. And they also are able to provide a lot of food for animals. So they provide pollen. They also provide um, seeds and places for insects to overwinter. And then, of course, food for a lot of animals as well. Okay. Um, And then you also talk about you know, cool season versus warm season grasses, native versus non-native, short versus tall. Can you, you know, sort of get into that a little bit more for us? Yeah, you know, generally I'm trying to use grasses that are in the range of three or four feet tall in a meadow um, for a couple of reasons. One is that slightly taller grasses, more than a foot or two tall, are more able to resist weed pressure over time. And also taller grasses tend to be more prone to flopping as, as are taller meadow plants. So there's kind of a sweet spot there that I'm often going for. And I'm really just trying to make my grasses and my meadow plants the same height as well, which is a really important design consideration because tall plants tend to trump smaller plants. So those are some some qualities that I'm shooting for when I'm when I'm designing with uh, with grasses. Okay, and then like the whole cool cool season, warm season. I mean, it's the first time I ever really yeah. thought about that. So, yeah, yeah. So tell us cool, more about that. Cool season grasses like to grow in the spring and the fall when nights are cooler, and warm season grasses grow in the summer. So. 
you have something like little blue stem as a warm season grass, and it won't really grow much until June when the nights warm up, and then it'll grow pretty quickly. And people are able to, I think, visualize this with lawn grasses because cool season grasses don't like heat, and lawn grasses blanch out a lot of times in the summer, and that's why. And cool season grasses tend to spread more, so I err on the side of trying to use a lot of grasses in my meadows because they clump, which means that they don't spread and compete with other meadow plants as much. So they play nice with the other plants there. And at the same time, I usually try to include a cool season grass or two so that there is some texture and fullness in the spring and into the fall as well. Okay. okay. And then how about, you know, native versus non-native? Um, how important is that? That's really important, especially with meadows. As a landscape designer, I, I use plants that aren't native very carefully, of course, and making sure that I'm doing that responsibly. But with meadows, you're really creating something that is there for its ecological value as well as its aesthetic value. And you're also trying to create something that's really resilient and low maintenance. And native plants have adapted to local conditions for thousands and thousands of years. And they also have these ongoing relationships with pollinators and other animals that live in the area that goes back forever. That's where they've co-evolved co together. So it's really helpful for all sorts of reasons to use native grasses and I really advocate when building meadows to to use native perennials as much as possible and that's what I do exclusively when when planting meadows. Oh you you working with native perennials you don't um any any plants that sell well a grass I guess are they perennial or when they seed or sell or do they self seed I mean I'm trying both. to differentiate, most, yeah, most, between perennial and know, self-seeding animals. Yeah, so most meadow grasses and perennials or, you know, flowering plants, which are also called forbs, those are usually perennials. I do use annuals in the nurse crop, which is what goes down with the seed to protect the young meadow when there's exposed soil it helps with uh, protect against erosion and sun scald and it helps uh, provide uh, a nursery for the little plants the little meadow plants as they're establishing but i also will mix in native annual seed with the nurse crop flowering annuals so that we can get some color in that first year and sometimes I'll put it down again for the second season as well because then you can get color there too. So when you're dealing with native perennials from seed it usually takes three four years before they really start to fill out and using annuals in the short term works well because it can help create fullness during that time. Yeah, because I imagine for some plants it takes a while for them to establish, um, particularly, I don't know, perennials. They could be biennials, so you don't really see much the first year, and then it takes, you know, another year before they flower, or or some plants, I don't know, it must just take take a while. Um, yeah, typically two or three years uh, before you really start seeing a perennial meadow from seeds start to look fuller. 
Okay, okay. Um, and there are, I'm just thinking, literally hundreds of wildflowers from which to choose. And it's like, okay, how does one narrow that selection down? Where, you know, where, where do you begin? Um, and this, this may be a little more, you know, you may have more, we're going to take a break in, a, in another minute or two, but maybe start into this and we can talk about it a little more to continue in the next segment. How do you choose? Because there, because there are so many perennials to choose from, using the site conditions as your parameters to whittle it down is really, really helpful. So understanding your soil conditions, obviously your climate zone, how much sun you get, and then figuring out what heights you want, and then also looking at flowering times so that you can have flowering times over the course of the season. Just using parameters like that starts to whittle down the possible candidates. And so you start to go from thousands to at least hundreds, if not um, a smaller list. And that really is very important in terms of putting together a meta design because otherwise it's just so overwhelming. There's so many species. And from there, you can then pick through what you, what's left and choose what you like and choose colors and aesthetics that you think would work really well. Okay, great. Um, listeners, thank you for joining us here on the Story Walking Radio Hour. We're going to take a break. Um, please help us grow our community of listeners and difference makers so we can work together to build a better world. Share these podcasts with your friends and family. All the Story Walking podcasts are free online. Go to the storywalking.com website to learn more. I'm your host, Wendy Natterney Fashon, and we're talking about Lawn into Meadows, Rebuilding Biodiversity with Sustainable Landscape Designer Owen Worm. Our conversation will continue after this station break. How can you make a difference on this crazy planet? Listen to nature-inspired stories and interviews with environmental educators for some new ideas. Sustainable Living News writer, nature walker, and youth educator Wendy Natterney Fashon hosts the Story Walking Radio Hour to talk about issues that matter and to introduce you to people who are coming up with creative, sensible solutions. Let's engage with Earth, with spirit, and with one another heart-to-heart to to solve problems and co-create more meaningful life stories. Tune in to Nature's Loving Vibes every Monday at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. here on the Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. Delight your kids with an enchanting journey by reading the Paper Doll Kids Children's Book by Deborah Beauvais and Janine Sullivan. There's even a catchy tune, Kids for Love Song, produced by Bob Sherwood and sung by kids just like yours. The story weaves around seven paper dolls flying around the world doing good deeds as they bring important attention to our endangered animal friends. There's even a magical ring with a universal message. Kids become interested in service projects, action through compassion, and planting seeds that nurture positive change. The Paper Doll Kids and Kids for Love Song are a production of the Kids for Love Project. Get the book now on Amazon Kindle and the song on CD Baby or iTunes. High school student Neil Fashan dreamed of leading other young people away from hopelessness to helpfulness, from loneliness to friendship. 
and from inertia to difference-making. Then, in college, he was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. After Neil died at age 20, his mother, Wendy, began to sort through the memorabilia he'd accumulated over the years. Artwork, notebooks, journals, personal notes, and letters. She's assembled these memories into a timely ebook called The Difference Maker. Parents and teens will appreciate this collection of stories about kindness, resilience, faith, and love. Go to thestorywalking.com website, download The Difference Maker, and become inspired. Edesia is a U.S. nonprofit dedicated to the dream of ending childhood malnutrition for millions of children around the world. Through the manufacture of Plumpy Nut and other nutrient-rich, peanut-based, ready-to-use foods, Edesia has already delivered life and hope to nearly 1 million children in over 26 developing countries. To find out how you can join Edesia's dream of ending childhood malnutrition, please visit ediciaglobal.org. This is Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, uniting mankind with universal love. Our shows are created from the heart, bringing each listener to a place of divine enlightenment. Breathe, relax, and enjoy. Let life flow. We're back with the Story Walking Radio Hour here on the syndicated Dream Vision 7 radio network. I'm your host, Wendy Natterney Fashon, and we're talking about Lawn and Meadows, Rebuilding Biodiversity with Sustainable Landscape Designer, Owen Wormser. Um, boy, this is a fun conversation. Um, I guess you know, where I'd like to go now, Owen, is if you could maybe tell us about you know, one or two of your favorite meadow planting projects. So you've done a lot of, you write about some of them in your book, and there's just some really, really neat projects that you've been doing. So. Yeah, one of the projects that was very satisfying, I, I mentioned in my book, and it was putting in a meadow at the Eric Carle Museum of Picture Book Art, which is in Amherst, Massachusetts. And there was an existing apple orchard there, and it had mowed turf under the orchard we were unable to dig out the turf or till the turf because we didn't want to disturb the roots of the apple trees. And I personally never use pesticides or herbicides in my work, and the museum didn't want to either because it's a site used by children, and we are also trying to create something of ecological value. So we were trying to figure out how to get a meadow established on this site, and I ended up using a drill seeder. And a drill seeder is a device that slices into the turf and deposits seed in the slice and then closes the turf back up over the, the score in, in the turf. And there was very little information that I could find about this in regard to planting meadows in gra into grass. And so I asked around and I asked people and I looked online and everything that I could find, which was limited, was basically saying, don't do that. Don't plant into existing turf. Get rid of it first. And so having no choice, we went ahead and did this. And fortunately, it worked. And so that was a, a real um, amazing thing to experience because it's a very prominent site and I was definitely nervous. If it, if it didn't work. And also, it's just an incredible opportunity to 
create a meadow there that's seen by thousands of children and it's an educational uh, site. And so now there's a beautiful meadow there. It's in its fourth season. And that's been one of the more redeeming um, meadow projects that I've, I've worked on. And then another experience that I had with creating a meadow was one of the first meadows I created and it was in a woodland clearing and so part of it was really shady and kind of off in the corner and I tried to establish a plant there that isn't it's kind of a meadow plant but you don't usually see in meadows which is Turks cap lily or it's a William canadense I think is the Latin name if I have it right and after many years four or five years of watching this meadow it had established, but none of these lilies showed up. And so I gave up on them. And after seven years, seven years after planting, I got a text from my client and they had a picture that they had taken and they shared with me that was just the corner of this meadow filled with these Turks cap lilies. So oh that was gosh. really an amazing, <laughs> amazing experience to see because it really reinforced that plants work at their own pace. And if you put the right plant in the right place, they usually do come through. Oh, that's pretty, that's a neat story. And I love the you know, the idea of the Eric Carl Museum. I mean, one of our favorite, you know, my favorite books to read to my kids was The Very Hungry Caterpillar <laughs> and yeah, all his artwork. Oh my gosh, what a, what a, what a, what a wonderful place to be able to, um, you know, do what you do and, and, and add to that whole, you know, aesthetic, whatever. That's fantastic. Any other projects? Well, I, I've done a lot of uh, community-oriented projects, and those are very satisfying as well because they're for the public in a way that doing individual garden projects are more limited in terms of their reach. So, those have been some projects that have been really satisfying. And one garden that I put in in Northampton, Massachusetts, is a medicinal garden. So every plant in it is used in herbalism, Western Native American or Chinese herbalism. And one of the things that was really interesting about that garden is that once it was planted, it became an incredible magnet for pollinators. And in some cases with some of the plants, they would just be completely thronged with all sorts of, of insects, bees, wasps, moths, flies, you know, the whole range. And that was something that was really amazing to see. And it's a public site. And so people can enjoy these gardens whenever they want to. And that's been a really fun project to be part of. Where is that site? It's it's in Northampton, Massachusetts, on State Street in front of Hungry Ghost Bread, which is a wonderful bakery. And there's oh, an amphitheater okay. there that we that I built. I also do stonework and all sorts of different oh. landscape work. So there's uh, performances and talks there as well. Nice. Oh, that's wonderful. So what else do you want to tell us about? Oh gosh, meadows and. Where well, should we go I guess, from here? I think one of the important points that I like to share with people is that we are coming from a place in our culture where 
no one really teaches us about ecology, including something like meadows. So we're coming from a place where we don't even really know that a lawn is what Doug Tallamy calls a deadscape. Pardon with that, that was snow falling off my roof. And um, so, there, so we have lawns, and there's really nothing in them, but a lot of people don't even know that. So I think it's really important to, to remind people that we're rebuilding that ecological knowledge. And I think people are a little bit chagrined about how little they know, but I, it's important to remember that very few of us know, know much. And I'm someone who's considered, you know, quote, unquote, an expert. And working with plants, the more I work with plants, I realize how little I know. And I think that's true for a lot of people who work with plants. Nature and ecology is so complex. And that can be daunting for folks, especially when you're coming from a background where no one really taught you much. So with meadows and with um, with rebuilding landscapes and creating eco ecological value, one of the most important things that people can do is just engage and work with what you have at hand. And even if you don't have a space where you, where you can create a meadow, you can still put a couple of meadow species in a planter or in a window box, and you'll be amazed because pollinators will still show up. Or if you aren't comfortable putting in a whole meadow and you have a lot of lawn space around your house, you can start with a small area and you can, you can play around. So it doesn't have to be this sort of all or nothing type of thing. And really, if we start engaging and we work with plants and we work with the natural world around us, we're going to learn. And that's really how we rebuild our ecological knowledge because we don't really have that. <laughs> and it's a really, really important thing if we want to continue to be here on this planet. So that would be, I think, one really important piece to, to just share with your listeners. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I think what a wonderful activity to do with children, you know, mm. to say, hey, let's let's create a let's create a meadow okay where do we start and just getting the kids engaged and you know and watching it grow over the years as they grow um absolutely I mean, and that that yeah magical that, that gap that a lot of us grew up with i'm fortunate because i grew up so close to nature but a lot of people don't have that luxury and if you can expose children to something as simple as planting a planter full of wildflowers that then attracts pollinators and they get to watch that, that's going to create that connection. And it goes a really, really long way because it creates essentially a form of literacy. It's like ecological literacy. And if, you, if you're not taught this stuff, you're essentially ecologically illiterate, which is where our culture is coming from. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, you know, one of the things I was interesting in reading your book, um, and I don't think people even really think about this, you know, they have their lawnmowers, right, and, and their leaf blowers and so forth, and they're using gas to power these things, and they're creating emissions, and I was kind of astonished at some of the, the facts about that, like, I don't think people realize actually how much fuel they're using or how much mm. CO2 they're creating 
and yet you get into that a little bit at the beginning of your book. Can you tell us a little bit more you know, about that? Yeah, I think it's an important thing for people to know, not so much <laughs> to make people feel guilty, but so they can take responsibility for what, what they're doing. And when you have a lawn, the amount of carbon that it requires to upkeep it, but also the amount of carbon that it keeps from going uh, into the soil is pretty significant because meadows sequester carbon, as do, of course, forests. But lawns don't, they're shallow rooted and they require a lot of, a lot of resources to keep them going. And one of those resources is in the form of chemical fertilizer, which is based off of, is made from natural gas. And then you have mowers running a commercial mower for an hour is the equivalent of driving a 2017 Toyota Camry 300 miles. So a commercial mower is like a four-foot-wide mowing deck that you see most uh, lawn mowing crews with. And the list just goes on and on in terms of the impact that lawns have and the carbon footprint they have. And meadows really are on the opposite end of that spectrum. So it's pretty sobering to realize how deep that impact is that lawns have. And for someone like myself who already understood that they were ecologically uh, problematic, as I researched lawns into meadows, my job dropped a couple times just reading things like that from the EPA, there's a statistic saying that just filling lawnmowers alone and the spillage from filling lawnmowers, there's 17 million gallons of gas that are spilled every year, which is the same amount as what was released from the Exxon Valdez in the oil spill in the last millennium. And that's just one of these many statistics. So that should start to give you all some understanding of how problematic lawns are ecologically. Yeah. And uh, I know this is, this is, this is really sobering. Um, and yet, you know, it's, it's not like you need to turn the whole lawn into a meadow tomorrow, right? <laughs> but every little step that we take starts somewhere and say, you know what, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put a little meadow over here. I'm going to put this at the edge of the edge of the lawn over there or create a little Island or, I mean, they're just, you know, just a, get started and, and see how it goes. See what kinds of bees and butterflies and birds show up that weren't showing up before. Um, Absolutely. You know, I, yeah. Even just stopping That's, the use of, of the chemicals. Just stop their use. <laughs> exactly. There's so many oh. things that we can do incrementally that add up. So even if you're going to keep your lawn, use organic fertilizer. You know, don't use fertilizer at all if you can get away with it. And there are so many different things that you can do, like you said, where you're just taking a portion of your lawn. Maybe it's your backyard where no one will see it, and you turn that into a meadow. Or you just do a five-by-five plot and use it as practice. And then over the course of time, you gain a little bit more perspective and experience, and you can do a larger portion. So really anything incrementally is going to help. And there's an area the size of Washington State that is mowed turf in the United States, and we got to that situation by people adding lawns incrementally. And so we can also take that away incrementally and 
do it at a pace that people are comfortable with. But really, it's, it's an important endeavor because most of that isn't used and is totally unnecessary. So anything that um, chips away at that is going to have value. Fantastic. Okay, so where can people learn more about um, you, your work, your book? Um, where, where can they go? Yeah, so they can get my book from Stone Pier Press, which is stonepierpress.org, and it's distributed through Chelsea Green, but the publisher is, is Stone Pier Press. And so you can buy it directly from them, and you can follow me on Instagram at Lons Into Meadows. It's Lons with Into Meadows with underscores in between the words. And also you can always peruse my website, abounddesign.com. I limit my work right now to the Pioneer Valley here in Western Mass, so I'm unable to do consultations outside of that. But you can see some of the gardens that I've done and some of the work that I've done there. Okay, fantastic. And the book, yeah, um, Lawns and the Meadows, is, it, it's, it's just really something to get you started. Because when you think about all the grasses and, and flowers, I, I don't know, if you, if you tried to put those all into a book, it would probably take three or four really thick books. <laughs> so, um, but this is, a, I think, The Lawns into Meadows as a book is a great place to start and then, and then just kind of go from there. So, um, Owen, anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up here? I tried to make the book really accessible for people and... I really, the, for folks who want to learn how to do this, it's a great resource because I'm really opening it up in terms of all the different ways that you can tackle this. And a lot of times when there are these how-to books, they're very rigid in how it should be done. And there's a lot of different ways that you can transform your lawn into a meadow. And so I really try to make that accessible and really encourage people to engage like I've, like I've discussed. So uh, there's also two, copy, two editions. There's a first edition and a second edition just came out in November that has color photographs as well. So they're a good resource. And I really wrote them with that in mind because I'm really ultimately trying to just give people the tools they need so that they can go do this work themselves. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Owen, for sharing your experience, your knowledge, your resources, and your wisdom. Listeners, if you have specific questions um, for Owen, um, you can try and reach out to him through his website, but you know, follow him. Follow him on, um, on Instagram and, um, and, and, and uh, yeah, pick up the book and then just kind of go from there. Uh, and I will provide these links, these resource links, uh, on the podcast page related to today's show. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with friends and family. Please help us grow our community of listeners and difference makers so together we can build a better world. All the Storywalking podcasts are free online. Go to the storywalking.com website to learn more. Um, the Storywalking Radio Hour airs on the syndicated Dream Vision 7 radio network every Monday at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Listen online, on your mobile device, anywhere, anytime. For a full schedule of Dream Vision 7 radio programming, go to DreamVision7, numeral 7, radio.com. And gosh, thank you for joining us here today, everybody, on the Storywalking Radio Hour. I'm your host. 
Wendy Natterney Fashion with our guest Owen Wormsey. And we wish you all the very best as you introduce more natural solutions into your life and story walk your way towards a better world. Thank you. Once again, the Story Walking Radio Hour has covered a lot of ground. Please join Wendy Natterney Fashon next time for a new edition of the Story Walking Radio Hour. This show airs every Monday at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. Listen live on DreamVision7Radio.com, where you can also access archives of previous Story Walking Radio Hour episodes. Find them under the Sustainable Living section. And visit the storywalking.com website, where you can contact Wendy to learn more about the practice of storywalking. This is Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, uniting mankind with universal love. Our shows are created from the heart, bringing each listener to a place of divine enlightenment. Breathe, relax, and enjoy. Let life flow.